Sarah Shackett here, Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire, and I'm very excited to bring this episode of the Filmmaker's Toolkit podcast to you because I and Chris O'Fault got to sit down with the phenomenal director and editor of the Beatles Get Back documentary. That is right, we talked to Peter Jackson and Jabiz Olson about the mountain of material they had to sift through in order to create the three-part Disney series. It's a phenomenal conversation. The two of them are hilarious together, first of all. And I think it is really amazing to listen to the two of them talk about what their concerns were and also kind of what detective work needed to happen in order to string together the story of the Beatles that people, a lot of people thought they knew, but to add new context to it and to give it new life and a sense of unfolding instead of inevitability. It's a wonderful conversation that I think anyone who thinks at all about storytelling will find something to enjoy. Filmmaker's Toolkit is brought to you this week by and just like that for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other categories. The HBO Max original series and just like that is a new chapter of the groundbreaking HBO series Sex and the City, following Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte as they navigate the journey from the complicated reality of life and friendship in their 30s to the even more complicated reality of life and friendship in their 50s. From executive producer Michael Patrick King, the series stars Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon, and Kristen Davis. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. I will sit back and let you enjoy this conversation with Peter Jackson and Chibiz Olson. Thank you guys so much for sitting down with us. I just want to start at the start. You have this massive pile of audio, this incredible video trove. How do you start getting your arms around it? What What are you thinking as you're watching down the footage? Does it start with watching down the footage? Where do you start? Yeah. Well, well, the I first mean, thing I ever heard, Peter, was that you, you sent me an email because you were in England and you uh, had gone into the Apple offices and yeah. you had started watching it there on videotape in their conference room. Do you, I'm uh-huh. sure you remember that. Oh, yeah. But um, you, oh, you yeah. put a few days aside for it thinking oh yeah i'll probably see most of it but because of the amount i think you got through a few days before you you had to move on i would just get emails from you in the evening describing what you'd seen and the first thing you said to me is despite all the mythology about what this uh, time was like and how miserable it was that is not what you're seeing in the footage and um, you couldn't believe it Chris, to answer your question, Sarah, you also have to factor in the general understanding or, if, or mythology, if you want to call it mythology, of, the, of this period of time in the Beatles' history. As a Beatles fan, I've been reading Beatles books for 40-odd years and had a, painted a picture of the Let It Be Get Back sessions in my head based on all the books. So, you know, we were going into it with one perception and, and we hadn't, you know, I, I hadn't agreed to do the film. So I told Apple, I said, it would be a lifetime dream of mine to do a Beatles movie, but I, I'm, I don't want to do the Beatles breakup film. And if this footage is indeed showing them breaking up, as we all believe it did, and if Let It Be represents the stuff that they were happy for people to see, what the hell is going to be in this footage that they didn't want people to see back then? What stuff am I going to have to look at now that was held back from Let Let It Be? How bad is it going to get? You know, and so I I had dread to to look at this stuff. I was excited on one level because it's all the, you know, Beatles stuff I've never seen before, but I also had a heavy heart and I said to them, please just let me watch it. But that wasn't the case. And so what Jabez and I did is we had 130 hours of audio and, you know, the, the camera turns on and off. So within the 130 hours of audio, you've got 57 hours of picture. 
picture. But if you regard the audio as being like the timeline and then the cameras switch on and off at different places all, all the way through that, that 130 hours. So there's about 57 hours in total of picture. But the, but the story obviously is, is in the audio, not just the picture. So what Jabez and I started doing is we sat and we sort of, and we watched it all. And, and when I say watched it, we, we, we had it prepared so we could sit in the, in the cutting room and where there was picture, we'd, we'd watch the picture. And when it went to audio only, we just had a black screen, just said audio, audio only. We watched all 130 hours because you have to, obviously. And we didn't know what the story was. I mean, Apple was, kept saying to me, well, what, what, what's the story? What story are you going to tell? And I said, well, let's just wait. We do have to see it and understand it. And, we, and uh, you know, I realized that the books, there's no help to be gotten from any of the books that I've read over the years in terms of what this was about because the books were so inaccurate about what actually ha happened during that month. And then, of course, what happens, you know, is that you get to the end of the 130 hours, you've seen and heard conversations towards the end, you know, in the second half that you think, well, hang on, back then they were talking about something that might relate to that. So you've sort of got to go back and you've got to listen, you've got to watch it all again, because you've now got the knowledge of the whole 130 hours, which you didn't have going in. And you want to now listen to the first half with the understanding of what's going to happen in the second half. You've got because there's things that are spoken about that didn't mean a thing on the way first time through that now have a have a. a um, a more interesting context or a meaning. So we sort of watched it all twice, really. And then to answer Apple's question that they kept asking me, what's the story? It was, we just felt, well, there is a, there, there, there's a story has to be the most simple story, which is a linear story of starting on the first day of the get back sessions and proceeding through to the end. And so in, by doing that, we, the audience, the viewer, is experiencing things happening at the same time as the Beatles are. On day six, you're looking at the day six. Nobody knows that George is going to quit the, ne the next day. You know, we don't know. They they don't know. You know, obviously, if you're a Beatles fan, you, you probably you probably do know. But just from a point of view of an average you know, viewer, like, we're not ahead of the Beatles. The audience watching Get Back at some point might be led to believe that they're going to go overseas, they're going to play in the amphitheatre because they themselves think that might be possible at one point. We just wanted the audience to experience it as the Beatles are experiencing it themselves. One of the issues they were having, because they wanted to play live, it's that they were lacking a musician because they wanted five instruments and there's only the four of them. And now normally, you know, for the past few years, they'd solved that by overdubbing and, you know, just doing a second pass. Eventually this gets solved by bringing Billy Preston in, you know, an amazing piano player. Um, and I remember it was quite fairly late in the piece that Peter went back and watched the footage again. I mean, he says we watched it twice. I mean, that, that's initially, you know, we, we watched these yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot more than twice during the four years. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I remember there was late in the piece, you know, Peter said, you know, I've gone back through the, the rushes and this is great, but that we didn't notice where John and Paul are discussing, well, how are we going to play this? We need to bring in a piano player. We need a, you know, we, we can't do it all. Now, they didn't mention Billy Preston, but we had missed it on our first go through because it, it hadn't seemed like a major conversation or something that was very important. And it wasn't until the story of Billy Preston became obvious later on that this became a great setup. This became a great little piece that just showed you that things were percolating in these storylines. And it, that happened all the time with the various storylines that we ended up discovering. One of the other big storylines is where are they going to perform? What is the show going to be? These were things that, you know, we would cut something, we would have a version and then go back and watch the rushes again. Peter was particularly good that after a long day of editing, he would go home and to relax, he would pick another day's rushes <laughs> and, and watch that just to see well, if there was I, I anything became, else there. 
I became terrified that in, with the sheer bulk of material that we were always we were always going to miss out on something that, yeah. <laughs> that we shouldn't miss out on it. And mm-hmm. and and the added the added complications of this is that we had discounted a lot of material early on because it was inaudible, because mm-hmm. it was you could hear that they were having a conversation. And I think that 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 conversation where Billy Preston's mentioned early on, like day two or something, mm-hmm. was in that you, you sort of it's drowned out by strumming by by noise. Some of it deliberately because I think George and John in particular were hypersensitive of being eavesdropped on by Michael Lindsay Hogg and they would start strumming their guitars really loudly. They're sabotaging the documentary to a certain degree, right? The weird thing is they're sabotaging the documentary that they're actually paying for. I I mean, I can never quite figure out that Michael Lindsay Hogg is hired by them, so why couldn't they just say to Michael, stop filming? (laughs) But they they seem to have a policy of never saying stop filming and instead they preferred to sort of drown out the audio. They they were sort of running all these subversive tactics. It's quintessentially British. (laughs) Yeah, 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 that's right. And so anyway, I, I and so but in the last eight months we we developed this software that we could separate and isolate things. Now we didn't you understand we were working on this for four years and that didn't enter our lives until about eight months before the end of the project. So I, I started panicking and thinking, God, have we discounted some stuff earlier on? Because because you could barely mm-hmm. hear it that we shouldn't have done. So in the evenings I would go back and listen to stuff we'd already cut and finished with. And I'd I try to, to listen through all the noise of what was being said. And if I thought something was vaguely interesting, I would say they might be saying something interesting. I can't make it all out can we put this conversation through mouths which through which is the name of our of our audio technology and so some of the last additions we were doing was because we cleaned up some stuff that we'd sort of previously discounted peter this is if i'm not mistaken here what you're talking about is that there's some machine learning here where you taught the computer this is paul this is john this is a guitar and there was almost like it, it, the computer and the so i think you're creating a piece of software here to almost demix right is that is that what is this isn't a piece that this isn't something out on the shelf that I could go buy. This is something that you and your team created, right? The, the initial motivation for it was to clear up the background noise. It, it was really just, you know, we've got this, because in addition to whoever's strumming over the top of somebody speaking, there's all that, but there's also just clatter and hum and background from the studio. And, and sometimes it's just noisy and, and it's unpleasant to listen to. You know, you're, even, even a conversation that you can hear perfectly mm-hmm. well has got crap happening in the background. It's just, and it's distracting. And it, and it actually so it made the clarity. Oh, initially. Yeah, it made the sort of the experience a little bit, uh, a little bit painful because your ears, are trying to work overtime to listen to the thing, and, and 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 so as soon as this technology, you know, started to become a real thing, the it's a machine learning thing. I don't understand anything about tech, but we thought, okay, well, we can teach the computer what the band sounds like, and that'll enable us to clear out all the background noise. Our team, very very clever guys that, that we've got working for us, they said, well, you realise we could actually give you the guitars all by themselves, or we could give you the drums all by themselves. Would that would that be good? And we were thinking, yeah. And then we were thinking, well, all that stuff where John or George are strumming over the top of the speaking. Could you get rid of John yeah. and George speaking? Yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure we can. So, so suddenly in the last eight months, this whole new world opened up. Well, some of the things that amazed me the most, often you'd have two different conversations on top of each other. And we just wanted to listen to one of them. We might, might want to listen to John and Paul talking, but you'd also have Michael Lindsay Hogg giving instructions to his camera guys, totally separate and unrelated, but it was on top of the conversation we wanted. So by teaching the machine who the, the different voices, you know, they had a, a lot of success in, in, in separating them out and we could choose, you know, what to keep. 
I, I do remember one conversation in the cutting room with the guys early on. Michael Lindsay Hogg has got a very loud voice. Very, very. I don't know. I don't know whether he had his own little microphone on his lapel. I don't think so because that technology didn't really exist. But anyway, he's the loudest person in the room at most times. Well, he's the one I, American I, that's there. They're always loud. <laughs> and I adore Michael, and we have to thank him for all this footage. He hasn't got enough credit for it. And I'm very, very fond of of a Michael. Very respectful of him. However, he did talk a lot when we were trying to listen to the Beatles, and um, and so I remember. remember rather cheekily the first thing I said to these sound guys is could you teach him what Michael Lindsay Hogg's voice sounds like and then, <laughs> and then could, could we just lose his voice because it was Michael was my first target get rid of Michael's voice and it's going <laughs> to clean things up up a lot now now that's obviously not true all the time because when Michael says things that we want to hear we but he but there's a lot of him talking over the top of of other otherwise um you know useful yeah. scenes it's a sort of you can have it both ways so in other words if you say can we just have Paul McCartney by himself can we just hear his voice by himself with no no one else we're, we're able to do that or you can also flip it around on the reverse. You can say, can we have everybody apart from Paul? Mm-hmm. And it can do that. Once it learns what somebody sounds like, you can either have, well, we just want them and get rid of everything else. Or you can say, get rid of them. And it somehow patches up the holes. That's what's amazing about it. Over the top of somebody's playing and Paul's talking and you want to mm-hmm. take Paul's voice out, you know, you think you'd have, you'd be left with a hole. But but the computer sort of the guitar is patched the computer must patch together the guitar the underneath where Paul used to be I, I don't know how it works I, I actually can't even <laughs> I just, so I just stop trying to explain it to you because I'm going to sound stupid it seems like one of the fundamental decisions that you made was to stay in a Michael Lindsay Hogg film in that sense that like you're going to stay within this world I'm curious about that decision but I'm also curious about you spent so much time in this how this was covered were you having to cheat or are there multiple do you always have multiple cameras to cut between I'm wondering about the footage that you inherited Cheating's not the term I'd use, but there is, um, we, we did have to be artistic because for, for most of the months, except for the concert day and the day after the concert, they only had two cameras. There were two little 16 millimeter cameras that could shoot about 11 minutes of footage at a time. And footage was expensive. And when we, there's a couple of moments in the rushes we heard where, you know, they, they talked about the producer, Dennis O'Dell, being worried about f- footage and stuff. They were cautious with how much film they shot, which means that there are a lot of gaps in in the footage. There's very few cases of a song being performed where they would shoot the song all the way through, and particularly not from two cameras. One of the big tasks was making it all work, finding, you know, making the footage work accurately and being able to put the story together just from two cameras of footage that were not always running. I mean, even with a song performance, they were generally on the Nagras. You'd listen to Don't Let Me Down like 25 times. It would be a lot of takes of Don't Let Me Down. And so one of the things we had to do is to listen to all those. And we were thinking, well, where is the development of the song? This is not sort of MTV. We just don't want to have a, a you know a video of the Beatles doing this early version of Don't Let Me Down. We, we want to show how the song develops and progresses and how it ends up sounding like the, the one that we're familiar with, because we're obviously all, all very familiar with these songs. So we, we listened to all the performances of, of of a song on the Nagras, and then as soon as you hear those things that you recognise from a finished song actually being developed, we would target those particular moments, and then you'd look at them and you'd think, well, this performance that we want to use of the song, there's only 25 seconds of footage. Camera starts for seven seconds, stops. Then there's 25 seconds of no cameras. Then uh, the camera starts again for eight seconds and stops. And maybe you got a bit where there's two cameras running. 
we'd go back through all 25 takes of the song looking at the pictures, and we did have to cheat some of the singing and to line it up where we had gaps. So the audio really was what we always were driven by. Are we hearing something that, that would be interesting and useful to hear in terms of a development of the song? And then we mm. would have to patch it with footage that came from other takes of the songs. Yeah, but, but for people to understand, you know, the, the, the amount of work we had to do, I mean, if you understand there are only two cameras running, well, if you see three shots in our film in a row and, you know, one's a wide shot, one's a close-up of someone and one's a two-shot and the next one's a two-shot of someone else, well, we only had two cameras, so um, something had to happen there to have three different setups so close together. Now that makes a ton of sense. I'm curious, you also have to sort of make decisions and what you were talking about, sort of the development of the song of like, how many versions are we going to hear of the song across the documentary? And so I'm curious how you guys plotted that and kind of made those decisions of like, what evolutionary stages we were going to see. I wouldn't say that we plotted mm. it, meaning that we didn't sort of have a map, more mapped out in advance. Jabez and I very much t tackled it day by day. When, when we sort of knuckled down to really editing this thing, having you know listened to it, watched it, done you know, whatever prep we could, we were just going to do it one day at a time and just work on one day. As you see in the in the film, there's the calendar comes up and it's day 12 or day, day 16, day 8, whatever. On any given day, you'd probably have something between five and seven hours of audio, and there might be somewhere between two hours of picture to three and a half hours of picture. And we were also had a, had a sort of a moral component to this too, which which we were very sensitive to, given the fact of the of the history of this project and the way that it's been misreported in in books. We didn't want to go the opposite way and create another fictitious version of of, mm. of it. And yet, yet you're editing it, so you could argue that unless you're running the entire 130 hours and giving people all of that, you are making editorial choices. But we were very, very careful that, that having viewed a, a given day, you know, and, and we did take it day by day because the moods change on each day. Some sometimes Ringo's hung over on one day. Sometimes looks like John's had a, a other activities at night, and he comes in pretty pretty lazy for the first half of the day, <laughs> and then in the afternoon he's perking up. You know, we took each day and we tried to to condense it into an accurate, shorter version of that day. So we ended up with like twenty twenty five minutes of. Uh, you know, being a, the length of a day as opposed to the full five or six hours. But we tried for that 25 minutes to be a fairly accurate encapsulation of the reality of that day. We really, we were super sensitive not to be injecting a, another fictitious na narrative on top of mm. top of all this stuff. I'm very confident that when somebody, and I'm sure people, well, well the, the Nagras are out there and available anyway on, on our boot bootleg, you know. If you listen to all of that, you look at all the footage, I'm, I don't think anyone could ever say that we manipulated or or change, uh, you know, the mood, the atmosphere, the way that the Beatles react to each other. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes George is in a grumpy mood, comes comes in, oh, I'm not having a good day, it's not a good day. And sometimes he's in a happy mood. We always tried to accurately capture their, their, yeah. their differing moods as well as then on top of that, you've got yeah. the song rehearsals and what songs do we use and don't, don't use. It was multi, um, multi kind of a layered thing. Well, it's nature. We're obviously having to condense what's there. You know, an hour-long conversation might become four minutes. And, mm. you know, in doing that, things are changing. But, you know, the overall idea is, well, even if we're going to miss out a few lines here and say that this line goes straight to that line, we, we want to make it just sure it's, it's accurate to the overall truth of the day and the moment, even if we are having to lose things and condense things and... Uh, change things. And I think one of the things, because the Nagras have been out there, is that the truth 
that is captured here is so much has changed when you see these people, you see their faces. Some lines that sounded harsh on the bootleg audio, when you see it, that John's saying it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile, you realize he's joking. And, you know, and it, all that context is lost just by listening to only the audio. You know, the picture just, you know, changed it, you know, a huge amount. And that must have been hard, right, Peter, because there's the balance here of the Beatles historian and how much gold there is in here and how much you could set the record straight by what you're seeing, and then also creating this compelling piece of audio. Now, you both pulled it off. and I mean, I, I was glued to the screen for eight hours and didn't, you know, watching this creative process go on. But that is, right, because you're dispelling a lot of it to be able to see how these people are acting and behaving and seeing, you know, my understanding of George Harrison is completely different seeing him in that room and seeing where he is in his station in life and his confidence level even. Well, it's, it's interesting that George, you mentioned George Harrison because there's obviously on day seven, we, we, we don't think of the dates, you know, that, you know January mm-hmm. the 10th or anything. We just mm-hmm. think of day one through, through 22 because that's how we've been thinking for seven years, um, on, on, for, for four years. Um, on day seven is the day that George leaves, right? And, he, and at lunchtime, he says, um, wonderful. I, I love the way that George leaves. I, th- I think I'm leaving the group now. I, he, he thinks he's leaving the group. I think I'm leaving the group now. And when? Now, you know, it's the most low-key um, um, qu- uh, band member quitting that I would imagine could ever possibly exist. Um, any, but anyway, he leaves at lunchtime, um, at the beginning of lunch. Lunch is just, just cool. Let's have lunch, and then, then he, he says oh, he's leaving. So the mystery is, of why, why does George leave? And so Jabez and I looked at that morning of the work, and, and fortunately that's a morning where a lot of film has been shot. For some reason, Michael had no idea George was going to leave at lunchtime, but um, you know, Dick James comes and meets, and there's a lot of film with him. Then they do, uh, they do get back, and then they do two of us. And, and Michael's rolling a lot of film, plus when the cameras aren't rolling, there's Nagras, and we just analyse that stuff to, to try to figure out where's the catalyst, where's the moment, where's the sharp word, where's the the insulting comment that that happens that causes George to leave, and there's not there's not one. But what there is on the on the film, and you don't get this in the in the bootlegs, of course, is the camera does film George in close up quite a lot through that morning, and you see it and get back. He just looks miserable. He looks unhappy, dark, miserable. While the while the other two guys are doing, you know, two of us, then they're staring at each other and playing and having fun. George is just sitting there looking utterly disconnected from them. And so we, we, there is no audio evidence of why he left. And I, and I don't believe any, any exists. I mean, because most of it, but that, that's pretty well covered. It, you know, you've got most of that on record that morning. Um, but there is, the, there is these shots of him looking absolutely miserable. So when he says he's leaving, it's sort of strangely of no surprise. And I think the whole thing with George too is just not, not that we're on this topic, but I think there was a lot of stuff going on in his private life at the time which contributed. I think he, yeah. he had crises happening at home is the way to describe yeah. it. Before I let you guys go, like Sarah and I both had the same favorite scene and it's yes. just an amazing piece <laughs> of filmmaking that before you leave, we have to ask. the Across the universe into rock and roll as they used to play and then some of the choices i don't want to say the choices that the two of you made there it's an incredible piece of filmmaking that got at another layer of what was going on i wonder if you guys could talk about uh about that scene um and and what you did there because it's um what the the contrast and and where they are you just said so much in there 
it was a contrast between where they are now and where they were three years ago. Because the the Budokan concert, you know, was I mean, you can say it's the sort of end of Beatle, Beatlemania. It was obviously it was on its way. It was tailing off at that point in '66, but um, but it was it was existed on on this nice colour footage, which was attractive, uh, you know. So we just thought, well, it's a co- it, it wasn't done for any reason other than the fact of they're, they're, that was them three years ago, and here they are three years later, mm-hmm. all alone in, 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 in a Twickenham. And we just did it to contrast between mm-hmm. the two environments, really. They're singing the same song, and over the space of three years, you've got, you know, you go from the stadium in Japan to the solitude of, of uh, Twi- Twickenham Studios. But I'll tell you one thing that when you mentioned the, across the universe into um, rock and roll music, I became obsessed with the moment that Paul peels the bassman sticker <laughs> off the amp. He's got the big bass amp beside him, and on the first two or three days, you see the sticker bassman, the one that ends up on his bass. You see the, with the green with the green wording. You see that on the side of the amp. And then I became obsessed with trying to pick the moment that that goes on, on his on his base. And we and there's no there's no film of him peeling it off and putting it on, but it happens it happens where you see it and get back. It's I think it's as they're starting to do rock and roll music, isn't yeah. it, David? That that we we looked at Paul's Paul's base and 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 there's no sticker, there's no sticker, there's no, no sticker, and it's on and the amp. The yeah. next shot, the sticker's there, and we, yeah. <laughs> and we figured out the exact moment in time where he must have just leaned over, peeled it off, and stuck yeah. it on his base right. And right Michael there. doesn't cover it. But he, as soon as it's done, he gets a shot of the guitar. He must, he must have sort of realised so what anyway, happened. So my mem- my memory of that is largely being being obsessed about that bassman sticker, <laughs> about trying to. But and we and we pinpointed the ten seconds that that the cameras yeah. weren't on it, but the audio was rolling, and it must have been the ten seconds when he peeled it off and stuck it on his. And, on his and can I say another another theory that I think we came up with, Peter? And I'm not sure we've talked about it, but what's happening there is that. John hasn't got a lot of songs to do, and so, but to contribute, he wants to re-record Across the Universe, which is a song they have recorded for a charity album, and, but John's never been happy with it, and he's always wanted to do it again. So he says, okay, well, we'll do that. We'll do my song Across the Universe, but he's forgotten the words. It's a complicated song, and he's forgotten the words. So he sends away to the office to get the words brought down, and while they're waiting for them, he gives it a go and tries to sing it, and he stumbles and he can't do it and then Paul yells out better take control Johnny and then they all on an instant burst into rock and roll music so we were wondering is better take control Johnny something that Paul used to yell on stage as a cue for them to start playing rock and roll music or something because it really seemed like that's what happened it it doesn't happen in the Japanese concert but we just thought that maybe in Hamburg or or the Cabin Club it was always one of their stage stage jokes better better take, take control Johnny and they all just go and go into rock rock and roll music because yeah. it's that it's that instantaneous. You hear Paul yell there, yeah. and all four of them just suddenly um, yeah. at the same time go because John's rock, just rock. failing a bit on the words yeah. to across yeah. the universe, and Paul yeah. just sort of shakes his head and, and they, you better take and, control. And they Johnny. also h- h- hilariously before they get Peter Brown is yeah. back in the Apple office in London has to drive to uh, the studio and bring them the words, and he shows up with the words. But before that, they they get their hands on a uh, acetate recording of their 1968 version, and they actually play the record to remind themselves of what the song is. The words. Because John wants to redo it, but it's been a year since they've actually yeah. done it. So they all are very, very, um, I would imagine, they're reasonably rusty on the words, the tune, the, you know, the chords, everything else. So they listen to the acetate, then Peter Brown brings in the words, and then they finally have enough to do yeah. it. But- 
Well, we got to let you guys go. We wish we had eight hours because uh, this is wonderful. But thank you both. And congrats. You know, it's really it, to make an eight hour uh, film about the creative process. And I realize it's the Beatles and we're all fascinated by it. But still, it's an amazing piece of filmmaking to keep us this interested in something like this. Um, it's, it's really compelling. Thank you very much. Filmmaker's Toolkit is also brought to you this week by The White Lotus for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other categories. The HBO original series The White Lotus is a sharp social satire following the exploits of employees and guests at an exclusive Hawaiian resort over the span of one highly transformative week. As darker dynamics emerge with each passing day, this biting series gradually reveals the complex truths of the seemingly picture-perfect travelers, cheerful hotel employees, and the idyllic locale itself. All episodes are now streaming on HBO Max.